Hey, Pitchforks gang, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast we think you should listen to. It's called Run for Something. It's hosted by political operative Amanda Littman. Amanda is the co-founder and executive director of Run for Something, an organization by the same name as the podcast, which recruits and supports young, diverse progressives running for local office. So tune in every Tuesday to meet some amazing local candidates and newly elected public servants, their parents, teachers, scientists, refugees, artists, veterans, and more. And the one thing they all share is their commitment to solving problems in their communities. Run for Something is a podcast about politics that will make you hopeful for the future. So please check it out. Anasar argues that the Biden administration is making this really profound break with the last 45 years of neoliberalism and that that break is going to create probably the biggest economic boom in collective memory. The only way to stop the political instability, which was revealed in 2016, is to restore broad-based growth. Who'd have thought that we'd be talking about Bidenomics? I know. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Goldie, today we get to talk to a very, very interesting person named Anasar Faruqi. And Anasar is a, a blogger, remarkably brilliant. I think he's a mathematician turned physicist. He came to my attention because an article that he wrote called The Making of the Mother of All Economic Booms was circulating among some policymakers that I collaborate with. And we thought it'd be really fun to uh, talk to him directly. So in this essay, Anasar argues that the Biden administration is making this really profound break with the last 45 years of neoliberalism and that that break uh, is going to create probably the biggest economic boom in you know collective memory, probably since the 60s, and that will absolutely create the kind of broad-based growth and benefits that should both transform the economy to also potentially the politics, uh, which is an even more important achievement, uh, and kind of runs through where we went, you know, how we went wrong and what the assumptions were that led us astray and how the Biden administration and the folks in that world uh, have broken with that and are now on a new path. Yeah, on the path to broad-based growth and, as he calls it, the mother of all economic booms. Right, let's talk to Anasar. My name is Anasar Faruqi. I do research in uh, a whole bunch of subjects. I Online, I go under Policy Tensor. I used to write policytensor.com, but I've since shifted to policytensor.substack.com with a bunch of other uh, uh, writers and researchers. We'd love for you to take us through the main planks of your argument and analysis. Sure. Your uh, listeners obviously must have heard a lot about uh, uh, the wages of neoliberalism and so the inequality and the 
slowdown in growth and uh, the kind of patterns uh, that we've seen since the 70s, since the onset of neoliberalism. And what I think has happened, uh, which is the main thesis in, in, um, uh, in that essay, is that we have finally broken through and elites in the United States today and technocrats in particular have come to the conclusion that the only way to stop the political instability, which was revealed in 2016, is to restore broad-based growth, right? And so the, the project of restoring broad-based growth requires what Yellen was talking about a couple of days ago, which is we got to go big on public investment. Public investment has been declining and is, is really low by historical standards. We must restore it. What is the objective? The objective is to restore broad-based growth. The same thing with the Fed's uh, uh, new commitment to uh, uh, empiricism. They, the Fed is basically now saying, we are not going to hike unless we're not going to remove accommodations unless we see inflation instead of just predicting it with our models. So the, much of the piece was about uh, the intellectual revolution within the, within the Fed technocrats and the political elites, uh, driven by the sort of electoral clock uh, of the election in two years and so on, that we need to go in big, we need to do something now, we need to show results right. before, before, before we go to the voters again. So that logic has, has driven a packed a lot of action into these two years, right? <laughs> um, and yes. my, my, question was, my question was, how did we get here, right? In a larger sense. And the larger sense that I have of how we got here is different from the usual accounts you find, uh, which is blames either technology, so skill bias, technical change is the technical is the word that economists use, right? Uh, which is a kind of way of saying there's an exogenous technological shock and you know, we don't have an account of what, how it happened, but what it, what it did was it increased the wages of highly skilled workers and reduced those of middle skilled workers uh, and, and hollowed out this economy, but it was this exogenous shock. Or this globalization idea that, you know, foreigners were responsible, yeah. you know, German competition, Japanese competition, Taiwanese, Korean, and Chinese, ultimately China, uh, becomes the big boogeyman, right? So, so uh, China is responsible, this China shock is responsible for, for, the, for the destabilization of U.S. manufacturing, for the decline of uh, productivity growth in U.S. manufacturing, for the decline of good, well-paying, manual, skilled jobs. That story doesn't add up, right? And I think what is really going on, uh, instead of these two logics, you have a different different kind of logic operating. And I think, I think of these as the logics of discipline. So what you have is you, the crisis of the 70s, the sectation crisis, destroys belief in, in the ability of politicians to manage the macroeconomy. So they are told to stand aside and new institutions are built in order to constrain their action, right? So the Europeans go well, well beyond anything that the Anglo-Saxon would achieve on this, right? But what is happening everywhere is the same. The treasury and the finance, uh, finance ministers are empowered to control uh, the spending ministries. The bond markets are brought in to discipline sovereign uh, borrowing and spending and uh, budget decisions and so on. And a series of institutions are created to discipline governments, uh, financially disciplined governments, largely through the work of the bond market. And this, this comes together you know, with that famous quote uh, from Carmine, who, who tells uh, who tells Clinton, "I want to be when I die. I want to I want to rise. Again, I want to uh, be born again as not as a baseball hitter, but as a, a, a as a bond market. You can intimidate anybody, right? And like that, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that logic that logic of disciplines comes together with the rise of finance with the whole neoliberal term, right? And uh, this extends. But my my point is that this extends very deep. It extends into industry. So all the firms too, the great industrial firms, which are responsible for the mid-century." Productivity growth, which are responsible for uh, the growth of the American working class and, you know, the achievement of middle class standards, that was the envy of the world. That whole thing was tied at the hip to the productivity and the dynamism of these industrial firms, 
which were brought under the discipline of finance through uh, buyout firms, the barbarians at the gate story, right? The, the buyout firms, the private equity firms went in and really created a market for corporate control, right? And they disciplined these firms and made them disgorge their surpluses to finance and to uh, essentially move away from a long-term investment and investment in long-term productivity growth and towards the short-term model uh, where you know shenanigans, financial shenanigans. You you borrow money from the uh, from the uh, bond market and then you you know do some buybacks or something, and that that massages the you know the returns on your yeah. stock, which is very good. But so- basically, yeah, the the primacy of shareholder value maximization as a as a business ethic and modality of operation, right? <laughs> the the dominance of that. Yeah, right. Sure. Right. Right. But 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 uh, what I'm saying is that these firms themselves became very became targets. So the relationship between finance and industry completely reversed, where you know yes. bankers had waited on the on the on the industrial firms uh, CEOs. It was now the CEOs who were reporting every quarter to the financial analysts, and and this uh, relationship of power between Wall Street and and, and industries is is crucial to why dynamism uh, vanished from the manufacturing sector. This is at least part of the story. The the other two other parts of the story. So I, I talked about this monetary discipline. I talked about. Uh, the discipline of uh, of governments and the discipline of the firm, uh, the discipline, the dis- the forces displaying these firms and governments and and uh, uh, economies, uh, and the, the the part of the monetary system is crucial because what happened with the Feds and the other hard currency issuing central banks is that once they were committed to price stability at all costs and they started ante- uh, hiking in anticipation of inflation, that introduced right. a very strong deflationary bias in the system, kind of like what happened in the gold standard. Right. Yeah. A, a strong deflationary bias, and the whole world economy was introduced by the reaction function of the Fed um, and the ECB, and the Bank of Japan was the first to break through actually from from this rigidity of the mind. Right. All these uh, processes are unfolding, and this is leading to uh, a decline in um, uh, middle skill jobs, and to the hourglass economy obtains in the 90s, and uh, income growth uh, stalls for the for the bulk of the population. And right. uh, uh, the, so the sheer number of jobs disappear for, for high school graduates, right? And this is devastating for working class families, which, you know, uh, their divorce rates uh, keep going up even when the middle class uh, divorce rates stabilize. Their child out of wedlock rates keep going up even after the uh, middle class child out of wedlock rates stabilize from the 90s, mid 90s onwards. And they just keep declining. And so working class families are devastated. Um, and this starts showing up in deaths of despair beginning at the turn of the century. Right. And, and that is a huge story because deaths of despair is the single best predictor of the swing towards Trump in 2016. It, it's really the, the, the pain of uh, working class America yeah. that right. leads to that revolt. And this is not really too properly understood. People think it's racial resentment and so on and so on. Those are, those are secondary logics. That's not, that's not what's driving the anger in the first place. So as I read your essay, I was super impressed by the analysis. And it is consonant with our own analysis, but it's not the same. And, you know, a big part of our analysis is that the world, uh, and particularly the left, which is where the problem lies, uh, bought the neoclassical neoliberal framing of economic cause and effect. And the simplest way to explain it is the pervasive view that there is this mechanical relationship between uh, wages and the number of jobs. And if wages are pushed up, then the number of jobs will go down, you know, because the economy is this Pareto optimal equilibrium within which if one thing goes up, another thing has to go down. And that, and that view w- was totally pervasive on 
the progressive left, even among left-leaning economists, which is sort of the fuel for the neoliberal fire, right? It's the Summers, Olivier Blanchard view of inflation. It goes on and on, right? That anything that happens to wealthy people is an unalloyed good, right? The size of the bonus pool at Goldman Sachs mm -hmm. is by definition a good thing. <laughs> uh, that's fine, but uh, it, God forbid we uh, send some unemployment insurance to working people that will that will kill jobs or harm incentives or whatever it is. And, and so that one of the things that I found so interesting about your analysis, which is, I think, dead on, is how you connect uh, neoclassical economic theory and the weaponized version of that, which is neoliberalism, with these sort of macroeconomic policies and behaviors. I, I think I think that uh, the connection is a uh at the tide of the hip. And here's how, here's how I think about this. It's not so much that you have these new Keynesian DGSE models that the technocrats really buy. This is what the economy looks like, right? It's not just yeah. that technical understanding of the economy that is at stake. What is at stake is the moral economy, right? So you're convinced, what you're really deep down convinced about, all of them, Summers, Blanchard, the whole works, what yeah. and even Yellen until this year, uh, what you really, Recently, truly, yeah. what you were really truly convinced about is that you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Yes, big trade-off, right? So, 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 yeah. you, so, you, so, if you're going to, if you're going to have deficit spending, it's going to create some problem. Uh, maybe it's not inflation. Maybe it'll be a, a, yeah. a run on no. your currency. Maybe it'll be run on the dollar. Then everything goes down. You're going to have to pay, right? And so, this, this is a question that is really tied very closely to uh, the kind of moral commitments. Of these yes. things, right? And all, all, right. All, all kind of postmodern thought in general, right? Like, new, new That's right. Exactly. If it because if it is a Pareto optimal equilibrium system, that has to be the case. Mm -hmm. It's a closed system. Exactly. <laughs> it, it has to be true. <laughs> the problem, of course, is it's not that kind of fucking system. That's not how it works. <laughs> it's, it's not how it works. It's an open, complex, adaptive ecology with energy pouring into it. Exactly. From the outside. You can't have your cake work. and eat it too. <laughs> yes, I think exactly. I, I completely agree. This notion that, you know, you can understand it like a closed system, you know, puppet five equations. Uh, and then that, that works just, you know, it just doesn't hold any water. Not after we know what what kind of openness uh, and, and extraction that is constantly necessary. You need to constantly uh, extract a larger and larger portion of the world's uh, resources to keep this humming. And you need to dump larger and larger amounts of carbon and other garbage yes. <laughs> into the system. And so it's not, a, it's not a closed system. It's an open system. It wouldn't survive if it were a closed system. That, that's one thing. The other thing is that very more particularly, just going back to that, that idea of not having a cake and eat it too, right? It's coupled to this idea that something is going to go wrong if we have deficits. And these things are baked into people's minds from the 70s, right? So what so the big fear is macroeconomic instability of some kind. And this is the main constraint on action, right? So the main constraint on, on climate action, the main constraint on action on uh, restoring broad-based growth is this intellectual rigidity, which says that there are definite limits beyond which uh, you can't push the economy uh, or you can't push uh, public finance. So the question of fiscal responsibility and the question of uh, prudential responsibility, I think is crucial. Like, unless we know how to talk about this in a more informed way, in a more empirically grounded way, and away from those, you know, kind of uh, theoretical ways of thinking about this in a, you know, five equation framework or something, unless we can move away from that theoretical moral commitment yes. and talk about it in a more 
uh, realistic way. Well, you know, what is the constraint? The constraint of US borrowing is what bond market participants uh, will accept. And as the, as the main provider of safe assets in the system, that constraint is completely slack. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh, 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 the Fed can print an arbitrary amount of money. That constraint is completely stacked. Right. Like this, uh, the only constraint on on the Fed is inflation itself. Right. And then then you must talk about the process of inflation and what has happened to inflation. And what has happened to inflation is, is globalized. You need to make these intellectual moves before you can get to a place where where you can be freed from the old rigidities that prevent a, a, a decisive action on the main challenges of the day. So I'm um, uh, I'm curious. I mean, you're, and we'll get to this in a moment. You're talking about how this, this change we're going through now is the making of the mother of all economic booms. Are you implying we could have had an economic boom all along Absolutely. over the past 45? So none none of the dislocation, none of the inequality, none of the slow growth was necessary or unavoidable. Um, had we not had this swing towards neoliberalism, I'm absolutely certain of that. The reason is that we could have, for example, we could the Fed could have always run the economy really hot, which is what they now plan to do, right? They could have always run the economy really hot. What that would have meant was that low-skilled workers' wages, middle-skilled workers' wages, people with high school degrees, their wages would have grown at the same rate as college graduates' salaries and you know professional class salaries, which have exploded, right? And so. This is why I'm saying that it's a very the systematic pattern of, of the behavior of the major institutions of management. That is the real conditioner. That is what created the secular down cycle, right? And once you, yeah. once you destroy them or once you dismantle these, these institutions, these realities, uh, then you immediately are free, right? You know, the way, the way British economy started booming immediately right after they went out of gold in 1931, right? <laughs> they, they bled themselves into going back to gold in 1925 at pre-war power of $486 uh, uh, dollars a pound, right? And they, they, yeah. they, they did this bloodletting and they forced themselves to go back at pre-war power. And then they suffered this massive uh, recession through the 20s. And then they went off golden 31 and everything was suddenly fine, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's what's, that's, I think that's the real model for it. You know, Nick and I are old enough to remember the 1970s and the, the gas lines and the inflation, the stagflation. Paul Volcker gets credit for crushing inflation. I know when I was in, my, my student loans in college were like 12, 15% because that, those are what interest rates were in the early 80s. But he gets a lot of credit for driving up interest rates and, and uh, crushing inflation and creating all that hardship. Could we have gotten inflation under control another way? I don't think so. No, the, the precondition, I agree with Powell on this. Uh, so the chair, the Federal Reserve chair uh, in his last speech, which, which is what prompted my essay, uh, he said that the, the, the key to the whole thing, the key to the whole thing is inflation expectations are completely anchored on target, right? They are not going to move. They're going to stay at 2% plus epsilon, right? And that is the precondition. Unless inflation expectations are, are anchored on target, you're playing with fire uh, because anything could destabilize, right? If they move all over the place, then you really risk a spiral of inflation. And that's what happened in the 70s, right? Inflation expectations got de-anchored in the mid-70s. And by the late 70s, they were completely out of control and completely destabilized the whole uh, macroeconomic management, the, the management of the macroeconomy. So they had to be brought down. And I, I think Walker did the right thing, actually. Uh, and, and um, you know, Carter was forced to appoint him, you know, because of the, the fall in the dollar, the, the dollar fell like 20, 30% and very rapidly. And he was panicked into appointing, you know, the, the known inflation hawk to go and fix it. Then Volcker takes over, which is why I call this the Volcker coup, right? I'm, I'm following Dumin and Levy, who called it the 1979 coup. But it was necessary, 
But what happens after you had stabilized inflation expectations? Inflation expectations were completely stabilized by the early 90s, mid 90s, right? And what happens after that is that you stay with this old rigidity that you need to keep hiking in anticipation mm -hmm. of inflation when your models predict that there'll be inflation a year down from now, which is, you know, the monetary policy works with a lag. That is the key when you know, you know, they're going to screw this up again. <laughs> when they say monetary policy <laughs> works with a lag, right? It, it means that they, they, they are not looking at the data. They're, they're, they're using the model predictions to, to uh, design policy. And that's, that's, a, that's been a catastrophe for the past 25 years. Among my group of advocates for reform, one of the things that we're all speaking about is how surprised we are by the quality of the execution of the Biden administration so mm -hmm. far. Mm -hmm. Like it's just actually shocking the degree to which they have married the right narratives with the right policies. It is, it is very pleasantly shocking, I must confess. <laughs> you know, just everybody's like, what the hell? And, and the feebleness of yeah. the opposition. Yeah. The, the, just, the well, I, ideologically, the other side has just surrendered all of a sudden. The, yeah. the GOP is, is yeah. having an existential crisis. They, they, they are not right. available for the conversation. I will say that uh, the Biden administration is making a catastrophic mistake on climate. They seem to be unconvinced that a decisive action is necessary on that front. And that is very dangerous because we don't have much time. But, you know, my friends who are in the climate space are pretty satisfied they wish it was more, of course, with the embedded climate action in the in the infrastructure bill. They feel pretty strongly like these these are huge steps. I would I would say that is greenwashing. It's it's not nearly enough. Okay. Uh, uh, um, the the scale of the transformation requires uh, required for this is an order of magnitude larger than what's already contained in mm -hmm. the infrastructure bill and the other okay. bill uh, uh, being considered by the White House uh, like this. The, the scale of investment that they have in mind is kind of uh, around what Warren had in mind, like $200 billion a year. It's going to be at least a trillion a year. And, and the reason is that you need to change your entire supply chains. You need to change how the energy infrastructure works. You need to, millions and millions of uh, uh, jobs have to be created to, 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 to the energy transition. And it's not just going to happen with a couple of hundred billion dollars a year. I think that the Biden administration is very, very shrewdly positioning the entire infrastructure bill, which does include a lot of things for climate change and other, and other uh, priorities for people as a jobs bill, mm -hmm. uh, because that's how you will generate the public support to push it over the line. Uh, and the simple truth is that despite the existential threat of climate change to the planet and the country, uh, the majority of citizens in our, in our country do not agree with you and uh, have shown again and again that they don't, uh, that they are not willing to support policies that involve near-term economic trade-offs for long-term benefits because we have spent the last 45 years savaging their economic well-being. Mm -hmm. So this is the great conundrum is you have created a citizenry that is so economically fragile that any kind of trade-off you ask them to make is, is sort of beyond their capacity, uh, which is very challenging if you're trying to do the right thing for the long term. I'm not so sure about this. The reason I'm not so sure about this is because I don't buy this trade-off. There's no short-term, long-term trade-off. Uh, the energy transition will require running the economy hot for 10 years, 
it'll require large scale of uh, public and, and private investment. Uh, and I think that you know the better ways there are better ways of financing it. And I've, I've written about it with uh, Albert Pinto uh, how to finance a, a green new deal. But this idea that it's going to hurt the working class, so they'll have to pay uh, uh, in the short term, is just not possible. That that's not what I'm, that's not that's not what anybody's proposing. I agree with you that in the aggregate there's no trade off, but there are certainly winners and losers. It it complicates the politics of this. I completely agree that the political economy is the challenge, right? And that's the main challenge. The main challenge is the political economy. So one way of doing this is to have a coalition of very powerful friends. And I think that is what is happening with the Biden White House. The uh, uh, Harris people and the Biden people, they have uh, uh, the backing of uh, uh, Silicon Valley. They have the backing of Wall Street. And that's how you contain the fossil interest. If you want to have a real green transition, you need some really, really powerful people on K Street on your side. And I, I agree. I agree with that way of thinking about this. And a political economy solution has to be found. The question is, what does that look like, right? Specific interest tied to, uh, uh, let's say, fracking in Pennsylvania may not be all solvable uh, in detail. But yeah. a political coalition can be assembled. I'm talking about money. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about people and money, right? A political coalition of voters and of uh, moneyed interests can be assembled, which can which can back the energy transition, the politics of the energy transition, right? And so, yeah. what I'm trying to say is this: Look, you created this uh, new party system in 1930s, right? And 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 this new party system in the 1930s was based on the hegemony of the Democratic Party. And this party system oversaw large-scale transformation, and the, the GOP kind of adapted to that world, and they began to adopt uh, the the rhetoric and the ideas of the Democratic Party and became part of that system. Something similar has to obtain now, which is that the, a new party system has to emerge based on the hegemony of the Democratic Party, but this can't happen unless you solve the, unless you make some progress in solving, right. you know, the, 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 the problem of class confrontation, the problem of, uh, uh, which is, I, think, I think that's the most serious, that's the most serious challenge. The serious challenge is to restore elite mass relations somehow, uh, uh, yes. enough, enough so that you can get backing for the next step. Uh, you, you need yes. buy-in. You need buy-in. So let's let let's talk about what might get us that buy-in, and that is getting back to the the title of your essay, mm-hmm. uh, "The Mother of All Economic Booms." Uh, how how big? What are we looking at? So uh, the Fed saying six point five percent. Goldman saying eight percent. I think I think uh, you know Goldman's closer to the market. Might be even slightly more. That's just twenty twenty one, right? Um, they can they can really sustain very high rates of growth for the next uh, 24 months um, before the election. I mean, this is not, this, this is almost kind of overdetermined at this point. Uh, we're going to have a very large economic boom. People are just going to come out and they just, they just don't want to let their ha- hair down after the pandemic, uh, lockdowns and so on. There's a lot of pent up demand. What is really the main, the crucial uh, may, uh, key to the, to the boom is that the Fed is ready to accommodate it, right? The Fed is ready to wait and see for inflation. Yes. And, and that's the crucial precondition right. uh, without which this doesn't work, right? And so now you have massive public spending, you have this pent-up demand, and you have the Fed ready to be accommodative for as long as it takes. That is the recipe for really the best economic boom since the latest 60s. And it'll be broad-based. I mean, we had just before the pandemic hit, we had just started to see wages recover, uh, wages growing. I, at, the, at the low end, I don't know how much of that were the, the minimum wage hikes that were passed in states around the country and how much of that was the market. But, you know, low wage workers, they should they should expect to benefit from this boom, too. 
Absolutely. So what we saw in the past 10 years is that as the labor market began to tighten, wage growth accelerated for, for low-income workers. And it, it started matching uh, the salaries of the professional class, uh, the growth rate of the salaries of the professional class. And that, that period of 2016, 2017 to 2020, 2019, uh, that period saw an actual real genuine wage growth for the, the, mass, the mass of the population. This is a lesson that has been really learned by the uh, macroeconomists and uh, uh, Fed technocrats and so on. And what they've learned is that labor market's tight doesn't mean inflation because the Phillips curve is dead. But labor market's tight means wage increases for everybody because the wage curve is alive and kicking. That's the key, right? So that's how you can have yes. your cake and eat it. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, uh, absolutely. Was the Phillips, you say the Phillips curve uh, is dead. Was it ever real? Or was it just like something that matched a couple decades of economic data and looked like it was real? No, it was real. It was real. I mean, it was real in the sense that uh, uh, before you had this kind of, uh, you know, unbundling of production outside uh, the, the borders of, you know, the United States is a big autarkic, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the largest economy in the world. And, and it's, it's kind of relatively, uh, you can think of it as a closed economy in a way that you cannot think of Germany, for example, or, or even Japan, right? So what was, what was happening at mid-century uh, for, these, for these decades is that there was a genuine trade-off. Uh, uh, between inflation and unemployment, and that the Fed learned to manage, and that was the idea that that they had gotten into their heads in the seventies and sixties, uh, in the seventies and eighties. But the thing is that Phillips curve relationship, which was really truly existing for for decades, increasingly broke down because of what happened to the supply chains of these firms. So now right. these supply chains are spread out over Canada and Mexico, and you know some run into China, some come go into Southeast Asia, and 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 this entire global production system, you know, we saw perfect. Perfect illustration of this when that ship turned uh, uh, in the Suez Canal, right? Uh, right. <laughs> there, were, there were hundreds of these ships carrying billions, tens of billions of uh, uh, of stuff, uh, in mostly uh, intermediate uh, components across, you know, half across the world to keep the value chains running. And these value chains have very large excess capacity, and that is why inflation is really dead. Once you start running uh, uh, the economy really hot and the whole world economy, the U.S. pulls the whole world economy out of recession uh, in 2021 and 2022, then you're going to start seeing some tightening in these global uh, supply chains. And then maybe a couple of years, few years down the line, we might start to see inflation again, right? So, so it's not disappears. That's right. But there, yeah, there, there's another couple of things that have changed the relationship between unemployment and inflation over the last 40 or 50 years. One of them is that it has just become at least an order of magnitude easier in all sorts of ways to generate more capacity in whatever industry you're in, yeah. right? It used to take years to set up a factory. You can do it in months today. Yeah, you can get a finance <laughs> right? like, so easy. Oh my God. You know, like it's just so much easier to generate uh, capacity. And the other thing, of course, as Goldie was pointing out earlier, is that there are so many goods and services that are made not out of atoms, but out of bits. Right. Where, yeah. where <laughs> your, Just, your capacity is infinite. Yeah. Where you, you, you know, zero, like, zero marginal cost investments. Yeah. <laughs> zero. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Just, you just, you just, you uh, just buy a little bit more space on AWS and yeah. uh, on Amazon right. servers, and there you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That it's it's in spin up a few more uh, uh, drives, and that's it. So, Anasar, 
let's conclude with this question. Aside from the climate change point that I think you wisely made, what other advice would you have for uh, the Biden administration? I think the Biden administration needs to figure out how to talk about anti-racism with the working class, the white working class. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is a challenge for progressives as a whole and for the Democratic Party and the left of the Democratic Party as a whole, uh, which is they don't know how to talk about it. Right now, the way they talk about it does a lot of class work and people hate it. People really hate it. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, it's become this you know, uh, currency of status competition, uh, which is very unfortunate because it is a necessary uh, revolution in attitudes. The key thing so right now, what they're doing is they're keeping a lid on it. They don't want to talk about it, <laughs> right. uh, uh, which is fine for a temporary, for the first phase of the operation, if you will. But it is not a long-term solution. In the long term, uh, you need to figure out how to repair relations with the white working class, uh, which has now become the Republican Party. right? And, and that would help, even if you can't win them back, really, that would help change the tone of the GOP. That would change the norms by which yeah. uh, the GOP elites uh, uh, mobilize their voters. Uh, and that conversation has to be won, and it will not be won by scolding from the pages of the New York Times. That, that, that's right. But what it will be won by is actually delivering the economic goods mm -hmm. to middle class people. Yes. For the first time in 40 years. That, Absolutely. It won't get them all, but it will get some of them. <laughs> and, and, you know, and proving again to people that government can be a force for good, that, that policy can make a difference, a positive difference in people's lives. And, uh, you know, a political party can be on the side mm -hmm. of ordinary people, not just mm -hmm. uh, rich shitbags like myself. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what do you recommend for uh, neoliberals? Uh, what, <laughs> what, what, what should they do uh, in response to this, uh, this crisis of faith they must be having right now? Is, is it over? Are they done? Should they just surrender? Uh, I, I, I don't know what they, I mean, they should change their minds in light of new information, but uh, I don't know yeah. what, what they will do. I suppose, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed watching uh, Summer's Rant and Rave. It, it felt oh, so fun. <laughs> it, it would be it would be like uh, when if, if you know US foreign policy changed and Kissinger would rant and rave on like you know Dr. Yeah. Carlson tonight, <laughs> like that. Yeah, that it was it was that kind of moment. I really savored it. <laughs> Short and Friday. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree. I don't think Larry Summers cares at all about inflation. He cares about relevance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Anasar, thank you so much for being with us. We haven't asked the final question. Okay, let's ask the final question. Okay. You, yeah, go, we we ask this it. of everybody. Why do you do this work? I don't know how not to. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. That's a good answer. But yeah, I, you I, know I can't what? Stop myself. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I I was a blogger for a number of years, and yeah, it, it was I was nuts that that yeah I couldn't not do it. I couldn't. Uh, so I understand <laughs> that totally. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Uh, but in any case, um, as you develop ideas, um, we'll be watching. But if you think that there are important things that folks are missing mm -hmm. or need to be highlighted, we, we look forward to hearing more uh, from you about that. Sure. So, again, thank you so much for being with us. It's really, really a fun, fun, My pleasure. fun yeah. chat. Fun yeah. conversation. Okay. Cheers. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Who'd have thought... Nick, uh, Bidenomics, that, that we'd be talking about Bidenomics. I mean, I, I got to admit, I was a Warren Democrat. Uh, Elizabeth yeah. Warren was my first choice. My second choice was Bernie Sanders, right? right? Biden as the, as the means towards a new deal, 
Yeah. Who'd have thought, Nick? I know, I know. And, uh, you know, people are frankly astounded by how well these folks are executing and how little there is to uh, criticize in the approach <laughs> that they have taken so far. It, it, because for sure, you know, my experience and sort of my political career has been largely intense frustration with uh, right. the, the folks that theoretically are on my side and the Biden people are just crushing it. Um, I, I definitely was not disappointed in our conversation with Anasar. His, he's clearly a, just a brilliant guy and a deep thinker and a great researcher. And I hope that we'll get to hear a lot more from him uh, about uh, macroeconomics and policy. And also looking forward to him being uh, right about yeah. his projections of, of yeah. 8% growth with uh, no inflation. That's right. Uh, yeah. His recent article is in the show notes. We highly recommend yeah. folks read it and uh, subscribe to his Substack. Uh, I think you'll find an astonishing array of uh, writing there across uh, really interesting subjects. And, you know, he's, he's just a really interesting guy and worth following. And in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we get to talk to my friend Mariana Mazzucato, one of the world's foremost economists, on a mission-based economy. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.